What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. So I think we're just going to get into today's case. Yeah, I have nothing else to say. I don't know how else to <laughs> to start this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so we never gonna... have like the best segue, but it's fine. That's just part of our charm. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, we'll just get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Between 1971 and 1972, six girls between the ages of 10 and 18 were abducted and killed in Washington, D.C., yet their killer has never been caught. What? Mishandling of the case on the part of the police department may have been one driver that left this case cold, but another may have been who these girls were. From Officer Tommy Musgrove, who headed the D.C. Police Homicide Unit, quote, Those black girls didn't mean anything to anybody. If those girls had been white, they would have put more manpower on it. There's no doubt about that. That is so... First of all, that is disgusting that you even anyone would even have that thought. And second of all, it's absolutely ridiculous because it's a reality. It's a completely disgusting reality, but it's, it's remarkable. It really is. And in... When I was doing research for this case, I found another case that happened right around the same time of two sisters who went missing. And to this day, they've never been found, but a killer was convicted in their oh. in their murder, basically. Okay. And the article was talking about how, you know, very similar situation, same area, same time period. And that case was pursued a lot more. Now, I will say there also obviously is are differences between the two cases in this case there's very little evidence and just not really any leads came up at all and there was also a lot of mishandling of the case and the case files specifically of the dc police department so that also played a role in it but i'm sure especially in that time that their race played a role in it as well and it's fucked up because if you remember the um, I believe it was the Relisha Rudd case who mm-hmm. was missing out of D.C. I mean, that was not that long ago. And it's basically very similar circumstances yeah. as to why her case is not being investigated better. Also. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a very big problem. Um, so I want to share this story with you guys today because, you know, it's been over 50 years. Wow. And while there's not a lot of leads Still, the families of the victims and some retired police detectives who have worked on the case are still determined to catch the killer. Well, that's good. And you just never know what talking more about these cases might do. And, you know, if word gets out there and people start talking about it again, who knows where the investigation might go. So we are going to start off with 13-year-old Carol Spinks, who was a shy 7th grader in D.C., and she reportedly loved playing jacks, loved doing hula hoop, and loved to jump double dutch. Oh, that's so cute. I know. I remember doing double dutch, and, like, I was so bad at it, but (laughs) I did everything I could to want to... to... Get better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So Carol had an identical twin, Carolyn, and an older sister, Valerie, and they lived in an apartment building on Waller Place Southeast in Washington, D.C., and they lived there with their single mother. Okay. On the evening of April 25th, 1971, Valerie, the oldest sister, convinced Carol to run to the local 7-Eleven to buy some TV dinners, bread, and soda. So Carol lived... um, in the same apartment building, but like in, a, in an apartment across the hall. And their mother had been out, I believe, visiting their aunt that day. And she had told them, don't leave the building while I'm gone. But they wanted some food for dinner. So Valerie gave Carol $5 and she headed to the 7-Eleven. While walking to the store, their mother actually spotted her. And she was upset that she had disobeyed her. But her mom was like, okay, you're already out. Go straight home after you go to the store and get these items. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, because no. Carol would never make it home that night. Oh, my God. So a clerk working at the 7-Eleven saw Carol leaving with a bag of groceries. And she was also seen by a 14-year-old girl and her mother leaving, basically walking away from the grocery from the store with grocery bags. Okay. But somewhere on the walk home, Carol was abducted. When her mother got home that night and Carol was nowhere to be found, she began scouring the neighborhood looking for her. But when no sign of Carol appeared anywhere, she went and filed a missing persons report for her daughter. Six days later, around 2 p.m. on May 1st, 1971, a call came in to the Washington police headquarters. Some children had been playing in a grassy area along Interstate 295 and had stumbled upon a body. When officers arrived, they found Carol. She had been strangled to death. She had cuts on her face, neck, chest, and both hands, and her nose was bloodied. She was wearing the same blue gym shorts and red sweater she had when she left home that night, but her shoes were missing. Okay. She had also been sodomized. Oh, my God. Yeah. So during an autopsy, they found that she had likely been kept alive for a few days before she was killed because it was estimated that she was killed just two to three days before she had been found. And at this point, she had been missing for six days. Okay. They also found that she had citrus fruit in her stomach. So it's believed that she was fed. Finally, they found green fibers, green synthetic fibers on her clothing. Ten weeks later, on July 8, 1971, a D.C. Department of Highways and Traffic employee was driving along I-295 when he encountered car trouble and pulled off the road. So when he got out of his car, he spotted the body of a young girl. Wow. What are the odds of that? Yeah. He called the D.C. Police Department, and it was actually the second call they had gotten that morning about the same body. So officers were dispatched, and they drove by the site, but they saw nothing. So they reported that they found nothing and were moving on. But a week later, one of the callers returned to the site and saw that the body was still there. Are you kidding me? So the first time the police officers had driven by, all they did was drive by. They didn't get out and look. If they even drove by. Yeah, if they even drove (laughs) by. And so this body was sitting out in the sweltering heat for a week. Oh, my God. 
So when this man returned and saw that the officers hadn't properly looked for the body and that it was still there, he called his boss who had connections to the D.C. police. So the boss drove by the site until he found the body. And when he did, he called his friend who was a D.C. police sergeant. Sergeant Charles Baden was off duty that day, but when he learned that the police had been contacted a week earlier and didn't do anything, he got on his motorcycle and drove to the site. Wow. So that's when he found the body and finally the police came. So let me just say for the record, off the record, I guess you would say, um, the D.C. police do not have the best reputation, unfortunately. And yeah. I used to live about 20 or 30 miles outside of D.C. and fre- frequented D.C. a good bit. And, yeah, that's really sad because that was, what, 50 years ago and not much mm-hmm. has changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even crazier is this body was just 15 feet from where Carol Spinks remains had been found two and a half months earlier. Oh, my gosh. So you think that they would be like, hey, yeah. another body was found in this same area two months ago. Let's check it out a little more than just like doodaloo by and not right. actually pay attention. And how old was this victim? So this was 16-year-old Darlenia Johnson. Ugh. So she, on July 8th, had told her mom, Helen, that she was going to her job at the Oxen Run Recreation Center. And she said that she was planning to stay the night because the center was having a sleepover for kids. But she never showed up to that sleepover. So she was reported missing the next day, but there had been no sign of her. And July 8th, the day she disappeared, was the same day the first two callers reported her body. What? But she wouldn't be officially found until a week later. So she was reported missing, and within the same span of hours a body was found found. yes and because they okay never mind just wow that is really wow yeah so there was a week of her body sitting in the sweltering sun decomposing because this is july Mm -hmm. and it was her body was so badly decomposed that she had to be identified by fingerprints oh my goodness And her cause of death could not be determined. They knew she had been murdered, but they couldn't determine her cause of death because of how decomposed she was. That is just unacceptable. Yeah. Because who knows, had she been found when those first two callers reported her, there may have been evidence. Wow. But that's not what happened. And just nine days later, a third body was found. So at around 8 p.m. on July 17th, 10-year-old Brenda Faye Crockett was sent to the store by her mother to buy bread and food for the family's three dogs. She didn't get home for over an hour, and that's when her mother, Retha, became concerned and went out looking for her. So when her mother went out looking, her younger sister, 7-year-old Bertha, stayed at the house with Retha's boyfriend. And while Retha was out looking for Brenda, the home phone rang. And Bertha was the one to pick it up, and it was Brenda. She was crying while she told her that a white man snatched her up and took her somewhere in Virginia. 
but he was sending her back home in a taxi. What? And Brenda then hung up. 25 minutes later, the phone rang again, and this time, Bretha's boyfriend was the one to answer. And he asked Brenda if she knew where in Virginia she was, to which she responded, no. And then she asked, did my mother see me? So then he was like, well, how could your mother see you if you're in Virginia? And then he told her to put the man on the phone. But instead, Brenda then whispered, well, I'll see you. And the line went dead. Less than eight hours later, a hitchhiker on Route 50 noticed a body on the side of the road. She was wearing blue and white print shorts and a matching halter top. And like Carol, she had green synthetic fibers on her clothing. And she had been raped and strangled to death. Oh my goodness, a 10-year-old little girl. Yeah. And the weirdest part about this murder was the two phone calls, but detectives yeah. speculated that the killer possibly knew Brenda's mother and was trying to find out if Brenda's mother, Retha, saw him with her that night. Oh. Like trying to see if he was spotted because maybe she might have recognized him. Yeah. And so that's why the calls happened. Less than three months later, on October 1st, another young girl disappeared. 12-year-old Nina Moshia Yates left her family's apartment around 7 p.m. to go to the local Safeway to buy sugar, flour, and paper plates. Her stepmom had just had a baby, and her father was at the hospital with the stepmom and the new baby, so she headed to the store, but she never made it back home. Two hours later... Two hours, a 16-year-old boy walking along Pennsylvania Avenue spotted her body. She was still warm. Oh, my God. Yeah. She had been raped and strangled to death, and like two of the other cases so far, green synthetic fibers were found on her clothing. What in the world? And she was found on Pennsylvania Avenue. That's where the, I mean, obviously, I know it's probably a large street, but (laughs) that's where the freaking White House is, dude. Yeah. Like, where were, where, why was there not anybody around to see Who that? Yeah. yeah. So, after Nina Moshia's murder, people started connecting the four cases. So, this is the point where they're like, okay, there's something going on here. So, police were thinking there may have been a serial killer on the loose, but they had never yeah. dealt with anything like this in DC. There had been serial killers in California and New York, but never in DC. They had never dealt with something like this. Right. This is the point that the media also started putting the pieces together and they started referring to the killer as the freeway phantom. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But no one had any idea who was doing this. They had no leads. Except for maybe that he was a white man, if that was accurate. Yeah. Just six weeks later, another young girl was found. Around 5 a.m. on November 16th, a police officer on patrol spotted a body just south of Route 202. This was 18-year-old Brenda Woodard, who had gone missing the day before. So on the evening, the prior evening, she went out to eat with a friend after their night classes, and the friend usually drove her home, but his car was in the shop, so they had to take the bus that night. Brenda got off the bus before the friend to transfer to another bus, but she never made it home. When she was found, Brenda's burgundy velvet coat was draped over her body, 
and her turtleneck was inside out and buttons were missing from her coat and skirt. She had been raped, strangled, and stabbed four times. Jeez. And it's likely that she was stabbed because she actually had defensive wounds on her hands, so she probably Fought. had the enough strength to fight back, whereas all the other girls were a lot younger, so might have not yeah. had that strength. And so he may have had to take a knife and, you know, use that. Right. And there was something else. There was a note in Brenda's pocket. Now, it was written in Brenda's handwriting, but it was clear that she was not the one who decided what it said. Okay, but okay. The note said, this is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially <laughs> women. I will admit to the others when you catch me if you can, exclamation point, and then it's signed freeway phantom exclamation point oh my goodness yeah so it's believed that the the killer dictated this note and forced brenda to write it yeah but unfortunately this didn't really lead police anywhere they had no leads and time started to pass and there was no nothing in the cases, but also no more bodies were found. So they oh. started to think that the freeway phantom had either moved out of the area or possibly gotten caught for other crimes. Yeah. However, 10 months later, the body of 17-year-old Diane Williams was found. In September 1972, Diane had spent the evening with her boyfriend after which he walked her to the bus stop for her trip home, but she never made it there. Mm. A trucker that had pulled off the road on I-295 had found her body, and like the others, she had been strangled to death. Diane was the last victim. The killing stopped after her, but police became more determined than ever to find the killer. So the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia, or the MPDC, started a hotline where they received hundreds of tips, each of which was investigated, but unfortunately, none of them led anywhere. A task force was also assembled that included MPDC detectives, detectives from other counties and the Maryland State Police, and the FBI. Okay. So the FBI were getting involved, and at one point, there were over 100 detectives and federal agents on this task force that were chasing wow. down every lead. They interviewed hundreds of suspects, and they were doing everything they could to solve this case. Wow, that's really good. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. And there were a few solid suspects over the years. So the first were a couple members of a local gang known as the Green Vega Rapists. So this Ew. gang apparently drove around in a green Chevrolet Vega and would attack women. Which makes sense with the green fibers found. They could have green interior. Very true. Hmm. So in 1974, two members of this gang were convicted of kidnapping and raping a young woman in D.C. back around the same time as the six victims were killed. So detectives on the Freeway Phantom case interviewed these two men who were in prison at Lorton Prison in Virginia. And during these interviews, one of the gang members actually implicated another, saying that this other guy had told him that he was involved in the murders. 
So this inmate agreed to provide more information if he would be kept anonymous because, you know, yeah, you don't want to be yeah, ratting <laughs> yeah. on someone else. No. But investigators believe, agreed. So this inmate said he, he wasn't involved in the homicide that he knew about and mm-hmm. he had an alibi to prove it. Oh, okay. But he said that he had been told about it from someone else. So he gave the detectives the name of the man who told him about this crime, the date and the location of the crime, and reportedly a specific detail that was not known to the public, but was correct. Unfortunately, before detectives could get anything more out of him, something went wrong. So there was an election in Maryland being held at the time, and one of the candidates decided to publicly announce that there had been a break in the freeway phantom investigation and that an inmate at Lorton Prison had given information to detectives about the killer. Oh, that's really great. Right? Just so smart to do that. I hope he did not get voted into office. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I tried to find out who this person was, but I couldn't. (laughs) But this guy basically fucked up any chance they had because Mm -hmm. after this, of course, that inmate stopped talking to the police and he ended up denying that he had given any information in the first place i was gonna say i'm surprised he didn't get murdered yeah yeah no he was like no it wasn't me what are you talking about like i didn't give any information ever yeah yeah so that lead went cold and they couldn't really find anything else on it now there are some people who still believe that a man or men from this gang were responsible one person is dc homicide investigator lewis richardson and he cited that the inmates that they spoke with took police to the exact crime scene explained how the girl was killed what she wore and other details and he believed this until his death in 2016 but other investigators have said that all of the information that the inmates had provided came straight from news reports And it's also reported that the inmate didn't know about the note found in Brenda's pocket, which is like a big detail that was reported and they didn't even know about that. Right. And then finally, hair samples from the men did not match the hairs that were apparently found on the victims. So these people have been ruled out and I don't think many people think that they're involved anymore. So they have DNA evidence. They're just not able to link it to anyone. Right. Wow. The strongest suspect in the case is a man named Robert Askins. And this man has been charged with murder several times over the years. Hmm. Several times, eh? (laughs) Yep. So in December 1938, then 19-year-old Askins was at a brothel in D.C. And there he gave five sex workers whiskey laced with cyanide. And this ended up killing one of them. So he was just... Killing people because he just wanted to kill people. Like, Mm -hmm. just, wow. Mm -hmm. And two days later, he strangled another sex worker to death. Jeez. So he was arrested for the murders of 31-year-old Ruth McDonald and 26-year-old Elizabeth Johnson. And when he was arrested, he told police that he was a, quote, woman hater. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And because of his words and actions when he was arrested, he was actually placed under mental observation. And while there, he ended up breaking free of his restraints and assaulting three workers before he was able to or before they were able to subdue him. Jeez. So he was like a violent man. Yeah. 
In April 1939, Askins was found criminally insane. So he was not tried for the murders, and he was committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a mental hospital in the area. Okay. He was there for many years and was released in April 1952. Five months after he was released, he strangled another woman to death. Why did, why, why? Why was he released? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. He was indicted for the murder of 42-year-old Laura Cook in 1954. And during the investigation and trial for this murder, it was determined that he was not criminally insane when, oh. he, was commi- when he committed the 1938 murders. Shocking. <laughs> so he tried to claim that he had mixed the cyanide for himself and said, like, I was trying to take my own life, but no, that didn't weren't. fly. So this time, he was convicted of the second-degree murder of the two girls in 1938 and the murder of this girl in 1952, and he was sentenced to 20 years to life. Okay, well, that's good, at least, but it's beyond sucks and is unfortunate and horrible that another woman had to die for that to happen. Yeah. And then... Just four years later, his conviction was overturned. Of course it was. Of course it was. And we don't really know why. I, I'm guessing it is because how he, it's the criminally insane play. Argument, and he probably yeah. tried to say, yeah, I, I, I was and somehow was able to fight it and prove it. Then he should spend eternity in a mental institution Mm -hmm. for criminals. (laughs) Yeah. So he still served time for the 1952 murder, but he didn't serve life because by 1977, the 58-year-old computer technician was out of jail. Wow. And he was caught again. For abducting and raping a 24-year-old woman in Washington, D.C. So after this charge, and with the investigation into the freeway phantom killings being in full swing, they were able to get a search warrant for Robert Askin's home in connection to the freeway phantom killings. Because similar crimes, he was out, he could have done this. Right up his alley. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So in his home, they didn't find anything that directly connected him to the case, but they did find some interesting things. So first of all, they found a document from when his conviction was overturned, like a court document. And in it, the word tantamount had been used. Which is very specific. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a very commonly used word. And if you remember, the note in Brenda's pocket used the word tantamount. So... This was just, you know, they were kind of like, hmm, that's kind of weird. And then Askin's colleagues later reported that the um, that he would often use that word when he was trying to, like, stress the importance of things. So just more evidence that he used this word. Okay. So, you know, not a direct connection, but it's definitely interesting to say the least. Yeah. I mean, the fact that unless it was like a popular, t- you know, word back in that time 
I don't see any other reason why someone would use that word so much unless he like learned it and thought it was like made him sound smarter. So yeah. he just used it all the time. But yeah, I doubtful that multiple people were using it at that time. Yeah. And especially like people who committed crimes of the same caliber. Like right. it just definitely seemed it seemed fishy. Yeah. So during the search of his home, police police also found women's scarves, photos of girls and young women, and an essay written by a young girl, and they found a knife that had been used in another crime. But again, nothing that was found was able to directly connect him to the murders. A month later, they got another search warrant for his vehicle, and in his car, they found two women's buttons and a gold earring. But again, nothing directly matched the murders. And I guess no one had green interior or green carpet at their home. Nope, nothing like that. And his hair did not match the hairs found on the victims. Okay. And then the green fibers didn't match anything found in his home or car. Okay. So Askins was convicted of the rape of the 24-year-old woman, and he was finally sentenced to life in prison. While he was there, he was interviewed several times in relation to the freeway phantom killings, but he continued to deny being involved. And he claimed that he, quote, did not have the depravity of mind required to commit any of the crimes. Like... No, that's not true. You yeah. could have committed these crimes. Like, shut up. Yeah. You're, I, not that, like, any criminal is capable of any crime, but the fact that, like you said, they're of the same caliber kind of proves yeah. that, yeah, you could. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he continued to deny involvement, and unfortunately, investigators didn't really have anything to directly connect him. Right. And in April 2010, he died in prison at the age of 91, and he was never charged in connection to the six murders. That's a long life. <laughs> Yeah. Dang. Thankfully, he lived the last like 40, 30 plus years of it in prison. Yeah. But he should have never gotten out of prison after committing the first murders in right. 1938. Like, exactly. <laughs> so he seemed like a prominent suspect in the early investigation. But at this point, most detectives that have worked on the case do not believe that he was the killer. Yeah. An FBI crime analysis was done on the killer. And this said that the killer likely had at least a high school education, had an average or above average intelligence, and was employed. He likely was not able to maintain healthy relationships and either lived alone or with an older woman. And it's believed that he lived in, in or around one of the neighborhoods where he abducted and killed the victims. Now, interestingly, some people have noted that everything was kind of centered around the St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital that was in the area. So where two of the victims were found was like behind the hospital, very close by. And there were other victims that lived nearby. And so it that kind of was something that some people have talked about of maybe somebody that had a connection to the hospital Either an old patient there or something else was the one committing these crimes. So that's an interesting lead and honestly is something that they're still looking into today. There was a book that came out in 2019 that is a lot about 
the connection to this hospital and the hospital kind of being like an anchor for the killer and things around it happening. I mean, that makes sense. But it is believed at the least that this the killer knew the neighborhoods and possibly knew some of the victims or their families. But there were no real leads. In 1987, D.C. police detective Romaine Jenkins reopened the case. So she had been on the police force when the victims were discovered and during the early investigative days. And she had been somewhat involved in the investigation, but never fully assigned to it for long enough to do a lot with it. And she was obsessed with solving it. In 1987, she had been assigned to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, and she finally had more resources to investigate the case. So she accessed case files, everything that they had, but unfortunately, many of these case files were incomplete or had lost several pages. And part of this is because apparently in the the um, the P- Metropolitan Police Department of D.C., they basically passed the case files on whenever somebody else was assigned instead of like starting a new file for the new person. Okay. So things kind of got mixed up and confused. And in one of the articles I read, some, uh, there was a quote from somebody that said one time they walked into like an old storage room in the police department and just found case files like strewn everywhere. Like wow. it was just a mess. So Jenkins was able to get um notebooks from former investigators and she was able to access the fbi files which were a little bit more put together she spoke with witnesses and victims families to try to see if there had been anything that had been overlooked and she did learn a couple things first of all she learned that the second victim darlenia had apparently her mother had apparently received phone calls during the time that she was missing, saying, I killed your daughter. What? Yeah. So I think this had been reported, but that information hadn't been properly recorded because she actually found out about this from Darlenia's sister, who had joined the police force later in her life. Wow. So Jenkins was going to try to get forensic testing done because, you know, in the 70s, DNA testing wasn't a thing (laughs) but as she was investigating in the late 80s and early 90s it was more you know there was more testing unfortunately though the evidence was not properly preserved and apparently according to jenkins quote no one knows where the evidence is now (laughs) yeah that is so sad that is just like when you're admitting it that is that's rock bottom (laughs) yeah And in 2009, the MPDC admitted that they lost the case file, which included the evidence. Jeez. How? Yeah. So they have said that there is a possibility it's still like in the archives in a box somewhere and that it'll be found one day. But they're basically like, we don't know where it is, which means we can't test this evidence that we have that could lead to finding the killer. Wow. So there is a chance, but... Because of the lack of evidence and the mishandling of the case files, it's unlikely that this case will ever be solved. Hmm. There is still, to this day, a $150,000 reward for any information about the Freeway Phantom murders. 
and the cold case unit of the MPDC is still asking for the public's help in solving the case. The families of the victims are still grieving their losses. They've had no closure. There's been no justice. They haven't been able to properly grieve. Diane Williams' aunt, Wilma Harper, actually founded an organization called the Freeway Phantom Organization. And this organization supports friends and families of murder victims, and they've put a lot of resources towards several cold cases over the years. Carol's identical twin sister, Carolyn, said that after her sister's murder, she couldn't get it together. Their older sister, Valerie, the one who convinced her to go out to the store that night, continues to blame herself for letting for letting Carol go out on her own. Yeah, I bet. Bertha Crockett, the younger sister who answered the phone when her sister Brenda called after being abducted, said that the day she learned her sister was killed was the most devastating time of her life. She said after the murder, her mother became more strict with her and her siblings, and because of that, Bertha ended up rebelling. And she says that her life would have taken a different direction if her sister hadn't been killed. That is so heartbreaking. I know. Patricia Williams, Diane's sister, joined the D.C. Police Department when she grew up, and she managed the child abuse squad in the youth division to try to help others. Carol, Darlenia, Nina Moshia, Brenda, and Diane deserve justice. And while it feels unlikely that that'll ever happen, you still never know. Their case file could be floating somewhere around in the police department, It could be sitting there with evidence that could easily be tested nowadays and linked to somebody. That's why I wanted to tell their story today, because it is not talked about nearly enough. This was DC's first real serial killer. Six young girls' lives were taken way too soon, and they barely get the attention in the media that cases of this caliber get. And their case has just been cold for way too long. Which is so sad and so unfair that, you know, they're getting overlooked because of their race. Yeah. And it's like, if they had this case file and this evidence, they could run it through a system. And the chances of them finding a match nowadays with more criminals having to give DNA and genetic genealogy... They could find a freaking match. It yeah. would not be that unlikely. But the fact that. So careless. Like yeah. just. That's unacceptable. That is yeah. fucking unacceptable. Like I get it. This case is so old. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that a has a lot leads. to do with it too. But like. It, that evidence has to be somewhere. Unless somebody yeah. took it home with them and disposed of it. I mean. Yeah. Which shouldn't be allowed. But. No. And it, like. If it had been properly preserved, this case could be could be solved. solved. Yeah. But it's just the fact that, and like you said, the D.C. police is definitely known for mishandling things. And in some of the articles I read, people who used to work there have said, yeah, it was really disorganized. Things got, you know, like thrown around and just not, things weren't properly documented. And it's just so frustrating that that happened because especially in this case, if they had that evidence that they say they had, the hair, the green fibers, yeah, something could be done with that today. And yep. 
unless that case file is found somewhere in the police department, it's likely that that won't happen. But but at the same time, it's like, why aren't people looking? Why is it still unknown if that file is somewhere? Why aren't the files getting more organized? Why aren't people looking for this file and saying, oh, for sure it's not here. Something must have happened to it. They're just... yeah it seems like there's just no movement on the case. It seems like nobody cares about it anymore. I mean, they drove by, quote unquote, a dead body and didn't see it. So, of course, they can't find a fucking file. Yeah, Yeah, very true. But I'm still hopeful that one day their stories could have answers. At first, when when I learned that the case file had been lost, I was like, there's no way. But then when there was somebody who used to work there saying, well, it could still be somewhere in there. It's just not labeled, basically, and we don't know where it is. I was like, you never know. Somebody might stumble upon that file one day. And if that DNA is tested, I really think the killer could be identified. They could probably get a volunteer in there to go through, which obviously they would have to, like, vet them and stuff like yeah. that. But. Yeah, I mean, I'll go have, do it. Damn. Yeah, for real. Like they have people that like grunt work people, for lack of yeah. better terms, um, that could go in there and go through the evidence. I mean, there's cameras in there, so they shouldn't be stealing anything. But yeah, exactly. Just <sighs> put put some work in, and and just it's a so small frustrating that effort. Yeah, and it's so frustrating that this case just isn't talked about enough because I feel like if it was talked about more, there would be more pressure on them to do something it's like that. It's a serial that. killer. Like, I, I, yeah. How much he more? six young girls. Yeah. Why are we not trying to find Some of them were children. A lot yeah. of them were children. They they all were. There was one that was 18, but that's still, still a child. Not yeah. technically, I guess, but they're all children. Like, what? Why aren't we taking this more seriously? Mm. But I wanted to share their story today. I had never Thank heard you, of yeah. this case, and which is crazy. And Me either the Phantom. <laughs> that one yeah. would have stuck in my mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I wanted to share that this story today. And, you know, hopefully by getting the word out there more, you never know what can happen. I will share as part of the Instagram post and Facebook post that I do, the poster that shows all of their faces and the reward and all of that that is still circulating and still accurate and out there um but yeah we appreciate you guys listening please 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 share about this case with friends post it on your social media whatever you can do to help get the word out there because i think this is a really important case that needs to be talked about light that fire (laughs) yeah exactly so we will catch up with you guys next week with another really big case and until then keep it human 